Good morning, North Hills. As always, I, I do covet your prayers as I stand behind the pulpit, having had an opportunity to do this now four or five times. Uh, it's no secret to, to anyone here that I'm not much of a preacher. Um, I do enjoy teaching. I enjoy teaching the Word of God. I enjoy studying. Um, I, I do thoroughly enjoy uh, sharing the truths that we find in God's Word. And uh, as a um, university professor by trade, my uh, inclination is to lecture more than to preach. And uh, I've, I've been taught and instructed by some of our men here who have attended seminary that that's not the way preaching is supposed to be. It's supposed to be more of a, of a proclamation. It's supposed to be more of an oration, as James Terrence has, has tried to teach me. Um, I, will, uh, I will confess I've tried to do that, and I will continue to try to do that. For today, I'm going to have to ask your indulgence. I don't think there's any way to cover this middle portion of the seventh chapter of Daniel without some degree of lecture and without some degree of even Bible study. So what I'd like to do today, um, with your indulgence, is to give you about a 25-minute lecture, about a 15-minute Bible study, and then we'll end with about five minutes of me preaching at you. That's the, the agenda for today. Um, let, let's start uh, this morning by, by reading our text. We're going to be, in, again, in the seventh chapter of Daniel this morning. Um, Evan started this chapter last week, and uh, we're going to pick up reading in verse 9, and we'll go down through verse 14. Daniel 7, 9 through 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let us pray and seek God's guidance this morning as we turn to his word. Our Father God, we are grateful to you this morning for your word. We are thankful every Sunday as we gather as a body of believers here at North Hills, that you have spoken truth to us. Uh, you, you speak to us through natural revelation. We see it all around us. But most specifically, God, you have spoken to us through your inerrant word. And as we turn to the pages of sacred scripture this morning, we ask for guidance. We ask for clarity. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds as we consider the truths of your word, as we seek to uh, understand them, to comprehend them, but ultimately, Lord, to humbly submit to them as we apply those truths to our hearts and to our lives. Father, we pray that our time of study this morning is edifying to the body, the body of Christ, that is. But, Lord, most of all, we pray that it is glorifying to you. We ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we said last week, um, Evan 
started us off in the chapter of, of uh, the seventh chapter of Daniel. And this initiates the beginning of the apocalyptic section of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are primarily historical narrative. It's simply a telling of events that happened uh, with Daniel. But as we get to chapter 7, we start to see this, this shift in writing style that's characterized uh, appropriately as apocalyptic language, apocalyptic writing. And it's very important as we get into apocalyptic writing and, and we, as we seek to understand that, that we're prepared to handle the symbolism that comes our way with that style of writing. It's highly symbolic. Um, the, the, the four kingdoms that we looked at last week that, that uh, Evan introduced to us actually had already been shown to us once before in, in Daniel chapter 2 in the structure of the, the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And last week, uh, Evan tried to give us a little bit more clarity on those four kingdoms as we looked at these four really terrible beasts in the first eight verses of Daniel 7. And while there might be some differing opinions on the identity of these beasts, um, I, I think that the, the bulk of the disagreement falls within the realm of disbelieving scholarship. Okay, so this might be surprising to you, but there are biblical scholars who do not believe the Bible. There are biblical scholars who are who are as lost as any pagan that you might that you might run across on the street. And for the the vast majority of those disbelieving scholars, they're going to attempt to date the book of Daniel very late in time so that they don't have to deal with the reality of the fulfilled prophecy that we see throughout the book. And this is a technique that we see in skeptical scholars again and again and again. But for those who are believing scholars, those who are committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, there's very little... um, disagreement over the identity of these four beasts as they're as are related in chapter 7 or of the four kingdoms represented in the statue of chapter 2. Believing scholars tend to coalesce around this idea that the first beast that we looked at last week is in fact the, the lion with wings, the, the Babylonian empire. The second beast, the bear with a mouthful of ribs, is uh, often identified as the Medo-Persian empire. The leopard, the third beast with the the two sets of wings and the four heads, is understood to be the Greek empire headed by Alexander the Great. And then the fourth beast, the mysterious beast that was more gruesome than all the others and and, and harder to reckon with, uh, such that Daniel didn't even apply an animal to it. He just saw this this different beast with the ten horns and the little horn and all of that stuff. Uh, That one is clearly identified for us as the Roman Empire at the time of the appearing of Christ. So another thing that we need to look at, in addition to the symbolism that's so prevalent in in the book of Daniel, is also the formal structure that is applied to this book. And and this might take a little bit of uh, of sort of lecturing, so so bear with me in this, but it's important that we understand this structure. Many scholars recognize in the book of Daniel a double chiastic structure. Now a chiasmus or a chiastic structure is simply this— It's a way of writing in which the material, the ideas, the concepts, the episodes of the writing unfold in sequence, and then parallel episodes to the first episodes uh, appear in in, in the writing in reverse order. 
Okay, so for example, if you can imagine um, a, a letter scheme that would identify section A, section B, section C of a writing, and then those three letters are flipped so that we see a further parallel or description of section C followed by section B followed by section A. That's exactly what we see in Daniel. We actually see it two times, um, but the, the, the one that's going to be important for us to recognize is the chiasmus that occurs in chapters 2 through 7. So as we look at these parallels of these chapters, 2, 3, and 4 are paralleled in reverse order by chapters 5, 6, and 7. This means that chapters 4 and 5, are, are kind, they kind of go together. They're parallels. They're, they're dealing with the same type of information. And we see that as we see in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, following a dream that Daniel had interpreted for him, is humbled by God. And then eventually returned to his senses. We remember him eating grass in the field like a beast. And then being returned to his common sense. Well, the parallel chapter to that, chapter 5, deals with, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, deals with Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. We remember that chapter from just a, a few weeks back. In this case, God deals with Belshazzar again through a dream that Daniel interprets. But in this case, Belshazzar was not returned to prominence. He was actually judged by God as his kingdom was handed over to the Medes and Persians. Well, chapters 3 and chapter 6 go together as parallels. Um, in chapter 3, we saw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the three Hebrew children, they were commanded to worship this grotesque statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They refused to do so. Chapter 6, we see that Daniel is commanded to stop praying. And he, he refuses, right? And he is thrown into the lion's den. So we've got this parallel accounts of God's faithful people refusing wicked orders from wicked kings and being providentially protected by God, both in the fiery furnace and in the lion's den. Okay? Now the parallel that, that we want to look at today is the parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 7. In chapter 2, we see these four kingdoms represented in this gargantuan statue that was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and we see that Daniel um, interpreted that dream and, and pointed the king to Christ in that moment. And we're going to see how that unplays in, in, in just a little while. But then in chapter 7, we've seen the four beasts that represent the same kingdoms from chapter 2. Only in this case, these kingdoms are presented in, in a little bit more clarity, in a little bit more detail, because this is a prophecy to a prophet of God rather than a warning to a wicked king. Okay, but we see the parallels in these chapters as we understand the form of, of how, the, how the book is structured. One other note that I'd like to say before we get into our text um, regarding apocalyptic writing is this. It is very important that we not get distracted by trying to identify every minute detail of apocalyptic writing before we get in our minds the full structure and, and, and the great picture of, of, of that the Scripture is trying to present. Um, this would be similar to, you know, if we consider the, the, the idea of an artist who is attempting to paint a serious portrait of a person. They're going to be very, very intent on getting the right shape, the right proportions, uh, the, 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 the scope and view of the person accurate so that they can tell and identify who this person is. On the other hand, an artist who deals in caricature will look at a couple of details 
and they'll exaggerate those details and create a caricature of an image that is in no way accurate to the image. It's, it's almost like a cartoon version of, of, of a painting, right? So, so the difference between serious portraits and caricature is kind of what we see if we allow ourselves to get hyper-focused on details and blow those up in significance, we end up with a caricature of Scripture. And nothing could be worse. Nothing could be less honoring to God than that. So we, we want to guard against that, that, particular, um, that, that particular error. Well, with that as, as sort of an introduction, I'd like to, I'd like to break our, um, our section of text today in, into three separate parts. The first part will be verses 9 and 10. We're going to call this the Ancient of Days Sits in Judgment. Then we'll look at chap, uh, verses 11 and 12, and we'll call that the Ancient of Days Judges the Beasts. And then from there, we'll look to, to verses 13 and 14, and that section will be entitled, The Ancient of Days Exalts the Son of Man and Grants Him a Kingdom. So beginning in verse 9, we see this picture of thrones being set up and the Ancient of Days taking his seat. That's a very exciting image and an exciting picture. The first thing we need to say about this is that while the language in this verse might indicate that somehow God, the Ancient of Days, is coming into a position of power, we need to recognize that nothing could be farther from the truth. God never came into power. Part of being God is that you're always in possession of all power. There's no transitory um, thought to be attached to God. He simply is and has always been over all things and in perfect authority. What this, what this picture is of, of God being seated on his throne is an idea that, that we might uh, refer to as anthropomorphic language. And that's another big fancy word. What it, what it really means is applying human concepts or ideas to God. So for us, we can see God being seated, and in our mind, that instills this vision of him being supreme and overall, even though he's not actually being or, or transitioning or moving from one place to another. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's not a place in this world that we can go to and get away from the presence of God. So this vision of him moving to or transitioning to his throne, um, pe some people have made more of that than needs to be made. It's simply an anthropomorphic term that allows us to see that Christ, uh, sorry, that God is in fact over all. In, in the second section of this uh, verse, nine, I'm calling it 9b, we see that his vesture was like white snow and that the hair of his head was like pure wool. This idea of white clothing or a white vesture symbolizes absolute righteousness, and the hair of his head being like wool is a symbol of age and authority. Um, for, for those uh, in our congregation who still have hair and have, have been around long enough to have what would be called a little snow on the roof, uh, a little whiteness to their hair, uh, we, we see that, and, and some people try to color that and, and make it go away. Um, in Scripture, the, the whiteness of the hair is not a bad thing. It's, it's a symbol of, of age. It's a symbol of wisdom. It's a symbol of authority in some sense. So for those of us who are fortunate to hang on to your hair, if it goes white, let it, let it be white and enjoy the, uh, the, the crowning achievement of age. Well, we see both of these concepts, both the white vesture and the, uh, the wool hair identified in the person of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, at the, the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, we see that Christ was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. 
So we see this righteousness of Christ being portrayed in the whiteness of his garments. Likewise, in Revelation 1, as John encounters Jesus, he writes of his hair being like wool. Revelation 1.14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So we see both the whiteness of the woolen hair, the whiteness of the vestures, as being true signs of, of deity as they're applied to Jesus Christ. While continuing with this symbolism in verse 9, we see at the end of this verse that his throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. And I'm sure all of us can recognize this language of fire. And, and throughout Scripture, we see fire being used as an indication of God, of his glory, and then oftentimes of his wrath. We can think of several instances where, where God has made himself known through fire. Um, one that comes to mind right away is Moses in the burning bush as God is appearing to Moses in the form of this bush in the wilderness burning. Um, we think of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. After these false prophets failed in their attempt to call down fire upon the altar, upon the sacrifice, Elijah soaked it with water. He doubled down on the fact that um, this is going to be a, a mighty work of God. And after offering a simple prayer, the fire of God consumed the sacrifice, the altar, the stones. Uh, the, the scripture says the fire even licked up the dust of the ground. So we see this mighty outpouring of God's uh, power in response to the prayer of his prophet Elijah. And also, uh, who, who could forget the, the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, uh, who upon offering strange fire on the altar were struck down by fire from God. His wrath was poured out upon them because of their, uh, their disobedient actions in his worship. Then, of course, as we're, as we're looking at this, this idea of fire and particularly the fiery wheels, uh, who, who can forget the, the image that Ezekiel paints for us, this incredible vision that he had of God um, on his throne, elevated. The throne had fiery wheels that had eyes. How many of you have, have read that recently? If you haven't, go read this, this, this image. It is, it is an amazing, an amazing thing. It'll fill you with wonder. You'll have more questions than answers. But, but this just incredible image of God, uh, the, the wheels moving in all four directions without ever turning the throne. Okay, this, and, and it simply is, is, is a very sort of fantastic way to, to paint a picture of the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God. We see fire a lot in Scripture used this way. Another way that we see fire used is in verse 10. We see in this case a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And in this case, many people see this example of fire from the Ancient of Days as being a clear indication of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we, we do see the Holy Spirit in Scripture referenced as fire. And even if we don't completely adopt this, this view here of seeing the Trinity in the Old Testament, which I, I love to see uh, the Trinity in the Old Testament, um, but some people would, would hesitate and not take that view, we can still understand this flowing forth of fire being the authority and power and majesty and greatness of God. Again, we don't want to get so wrapped up in the details that we miss the big picture of this scene. Well, continuing in verse 10, we see that thousands and thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. And these, uh, to me, are, are clearly angelic beings. Um, and we need not think that there's any way that these angelic beings are contributing to the authority of God. They're merely bearing witness to the authority of God. When, when an individual has a great deal of authority to be displayed, 
what happens a lot of times is they gather around them people who can bear witness and bear testimony to that authority. So these angels are not contributing to the authority of God. They're bearing witness to, they're attesting to, they're witnesses of the great authority and power of God who is seated in judgment. And at the end of chapter 10, we notice that the court set in judgment and the books were open. Okay, now in this case, I don't think it's necessary for us to view this scene as similar to the, the scene in Revelation where the books are opened and, and the final judgment. This is just stating that the books are open, meaning the knowledge of God extends. There's not a deed, there's not an action of man anywhere that can escape the absolute eternal knowledge of the Ancient of Days. So while the Bible clearly teaches a final judgment, it also speaks of God providentially judging throughout history always in a position to execute perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And that's the view, that's the scene that is being set forth in this, this sort of courtroom picture that we have of the Ancient of Days. Okay, As we move forward into verse 11, this section of text we're going to refer to as the Ancient of Days judges the beasts. And as we begin in verse 11, we see, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now, this beast that we're talking about in this situation is the fourth beast, and we're going to understand that a little bit more fully as we do our Bible study and compare chapter 7 to chapter 2. For now, what we notice is that this beast apparently had a loud-mouthed ruler, a a ruler, a horn that was speaking great words. And that's something that maybe the United States of America can relate to in recent history, having a loudmouth ruler. I don't, I don't think this was referring to Twitter necessarily, but there, there was certainly some boasting and some prideful statements being made by this horn in view here. And while he's looking at that, while uh, Daniel is looking at this, uh, this, this image of this horn speaking boastful things, um, uh, the beast, it says, while the horn was speaking, the beast was killed. The beast was undone. The beast was destroyed. It says even given over to be burned with fire. The plain meaning of this is, is simple. Um, the, the, the boastful beast, the, 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 the boastful horn that we're made aware of um, in chapter 2 is, uh, sorry, in, previously in chapter 7, is speaking great things. And because we recognize the beast with the little horn, and the, the bottom kingdom in the statue in chapter 2, we can see how that kingdom, that Roman kingdom that we're looking at, was ultimately destroyed. And then history even bears that out as we, as we work through our, our history texts. Well, continuing in, in verse 12, we see, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. The other beasts that continued to exist, um, although they were conquered by the fourth beast, they continued to have some existence. The Roman Empire often uh, conquered and absorbed nations, and even as the Roman authority was dispersed over those nations, the life of the conquered nations continued on. They weren't completely abolishing and annihilating nations. They, they, were, um, they were building an empire, so they were absorbing nations and conquering nations. So in short, this part of Daniel's vision really just depicts ultimately the fall of the fourth beast and the continued existence of the other beasts that were within the fourth beast's dominion. And we're going to see what happens to that fourth beast in just a little bit. I'm excited about that. I know you can't tell. I'm excited about getting to the destruction of the fourth beast. 
Well, to, to, to continue working through our text, verse 13 and 14 deals with the Ancient of Days exalting the Son of Man and granting to him a kingdom. Let's look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. Now, most of us are, are familiar with and know that in the New Testament, Jesus' favorite designation for himself was Son of Man, okay? When I do this, that means say it out loud, okay? That, that's fine. little participation will be good. Yeah, the Son of Man, right? Jesus referred to himself again and again and again as the Son of Man. When he did that in front of the, the Pharisees, what did they want to do? They picked up rocks to, to stone him, right? So, so they understood full well what he was claiming by identifying himself as the Son of Man. And the, that phrase in, in the mind of the Pharisees was none other than the phrase that we see here, as we see one like a Son of Man. Now let's, let's bore down into that just a little bit. This idea of one being like a Son of Man is interesting. To be like something is not to be 100% that something, Okay, if, 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 I, if I say to you, my son is like a bull in a china shop, um, that doesn't mean he is a bull in a china shop, but, but he is like one in, in many respects, meaning when he goes past something breakable, we got a lot of pieces of stuff on the floor, right? That's, he's like a bull in a china shop. Well, in, in a similar way here, to say that, that this one that we're, that we're viewing is like a son of man would mean that he has a lot of indications of being a son of man. However... We know that in the person of Jesus Christ, he was not one, uh, you know, entirely and only human. There was also a divine part. So we say that Christ was truly human. He was absolutely human. At the same time, he was absolutely divine. And that's the, that's the theology that comes into play with a statement like this, this one here, like a son of man. And let, let me just take a quick detour and say this is a very, very important concept to grasp to understand our salvation. This is absolutely vital to our salvation. Um, Ashlyn has come professing faith in Christ and being baptized this morning. Um, I, I would, I would want to tell you that unless Jesus Christ was truly man, he could not have offered the physical sacrifice necessary for Ashlyn or any of our salvation. And if he was not truly God, he could not have offered a sacrifice that would have been worthy of a perfectly holy God. So we have to have our, the, our, our atonement, theory of our atonement, really rests upon the fact that this unique person in all of human history, this one right here, like a son of man, was truly God and truly man. And that is what made him uniquely capable of paying for the sins of the world. Well, with, with that... With that detour uh, set aside, we see the significance of this, uh, this ancient of days and this interaction between the ancient of days and the Son of Man. We see that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds to the ancient of days. And I'd like to submit to you that this is the ascension of Jesus Christ upon his completion of all that he had come to accomplish on this earth. His death, burial, resurrection, and then he ascends to the ancient of days. And at that point... He is granted a kingdom. Notice verse 14. And to him a kingdom was given. Sorry, let me, let me read this correctly. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The Ancient of Days has given to the Son of Man dominion, glory, and a kingdom. 
And he's done this, notice, he's done this in such a way that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The result is that all people will ultimately be brought into submission to Christ. We can't read this without being reminded of Philippians 2. As Paul quotes Isaiah 45, it reads there in Philippians 2 verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that rings so true for us, and it rings so consistent with this idea of the Son of Man being given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. We see also, finally, in in the last part of verse 14, that the dominion of this one like a Son of Man is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So in the first part of verse 14, we see the scope of the kingdom. In the second part of verse 14, we see the duration of the kingdom. It is a worldwide dominion that is everlasting, never-ending. Okay, that's the end of the lecture. Okay, let's, let's turn quickly now and do a, a Bible study. I, I, I love uh, conducting Bible studies. I, I, I love to do Bible studies in my home. Um, I love nothing more than God's people just opening up his word and going to passages and studying things out. So let, let's pretend we're in a really, really big living room here, and we've got our Bibles open, and we're going to go to some passages. And I'd like for you to turn. I reference a lot of Scripture, but for these, I'd like for you to turn there and see this. We know that Daniel 7 is about the destruction of four wicked kingdoms. And these four wicked kingdoms have been introduced to us already in Daniel chapter 2. So what I'd like for us to do is turn in your Bibles. Everyone that's got a Bible, turn right now. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. And I want to begin looking in verse 31. Daniel 2, verse 31. And we, we remember that in, starting at this point in the chapter, Daniel has been called on to not only interpret the dream, but identify the dream. The king, either out of not, not remembering the dream or withholding that information, has demanded that he would only hear someone who could tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. And that's what Daniel uh, is, is about to do here. So let's look at Daniel 2, beginning verse 31. We read there, You saw, O king... And behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now pay close attention to this verse, because this is where our Bible study has taken us. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone, this is another important part, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now skip down to verse 44. As we're, as we're processing this idea of the little stone cut by no human hands, striking the feet of the statue, crumbling the statue. Look to verse 40, 44. 
And in the days of those kings, these are the kings that are described in this image, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, this kingdom, this other kingdom, this kingdom of Christ, this one that is given from the ancient of days to the Son of Man is set up. And it's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Daniel said, don't doubt me. Don't doubt me. Don't think twice about this. This interpretation is sure. Now make sure that we we get this and we get this picture in our mind. The stone cut with no human hands is Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ that is the Son of Man in chapter 7. And notice this is not the only time that we see being Christ referred to in some way as a stone. Um, We can all remember that in, in, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Psalm 118 is referenced and the fact that our Savior is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. So it's not uncommon for Christ to be referred to in language regarding stones. As we look farther into this, the great mountain that fills the earth, back over in, um, in verse 35 of Daniel 2, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the never-ending, ever-expanding kingdom of God. It fills the whole earth. This is the kingdom that is given to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. This is the kingdom that has no end. All right, now just a couple thoughts about that kingdom. Turn in your your Bibles to uh, John 18. John 18. The first thing we want to notice about this kingdom that is ever-expanding, that has no end, is that it is referenced in John 18 as being not a kingdom of this world. Okay, let's think through this a little bit. John 18, verse 36. John 18, 36. This is Jesus standing before Pilate. At some point in in the interrogation of Pilate, he answers him and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Get this last phrase. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now notice, this is not telling us that the kingdom of God has no concern with the earth that the kingdom of God has no, no ability to intrude into this earth. That's not what it means for this kingdom to not be of this world. For this kingdom to not be of this world is simply to say it has a different origination. It comes from a different place. And as such, it operates on a different set of norms. And we see that as we compare earthly kingdoms to the kingdom of Christ. Whereas military conflict is par for the course in earthly kingdoms, Christ's kingdom does not advance through military conquest. It simply, it it never has. Also, while earthly kingdoms are perpetually concerned with the politics of the day, Christ's kingdom will not advance through political strategies or through election cycles. God simply does not need these earthly um, modes of operation to accomplish his heavenly purposes because his kingdom is not of this earth, but it has come to this earth in the person of Christ. So this means uh, that the means by which the kingdom of God advances on this earth is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we possess, when we, when we go with the gospel, we possess the actual gospel of the kingdom. That's the manner in which God's kingdom is built. Jesus' apostles even struggled to understand this. Turn now, continue our Bible study, turn to Acts chapter 1. I want us to see this, Acts 1. We're going to begin in verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 reads, So when they had come together, they asked him. These are the apostles right before Jesus' ascension. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Essentially, he's telling them there, You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know this. Rather than being concerned about the timing of the kingdom, rather be concerned about things that are above their pay grade, what he tells them is this, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Christ's command for his, uh, his disciples there was that they not be concerned with building the kingdom necessarily. They needed to be concerned with being faithful. Their job was to be faithful, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the whole world. We today are part of the ever-growing kingdom of God because these men were faithful with the task at hand. They were given the task of going with the gospel, and they did that. I would argue that we have the same mandate today. We are continually in the process of building this kingdom, this stone that grows into a mountain that consumes the whole earth. We are in the process, we're in that building process, but our job is not one of a contractor. Our job is one of the guy that's hammering the nails, right? We show up and we paint what we're told to paint, and we show up and we nail what we're told to nail, and we dig the ditches that we need to dig, and we pour the foundations, and we we do all of these things, right? But we're not looking at the blueprints. We're just told, hey, go do this. Let God be in charge of the blueprints. Let's just be faithful to the tasks that he has given us, and that is to live out the gospel in our society today. And, of course, as we think about this idea of the gospel going through Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, then to the end of the earth, ultimately to us, it's hard for us to escape the promise of Habakkuk 2.14, where we read that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. So having done a quick Bible study with you, if you'll you'll bear with me for just a few minutes, I want to preach to you now. And uh, this is the weakest part of, of anything I've ever tried to do, so it'll, it'll be what it'll be. But let me try to exhort you and encourage you this morning. Jesus Christ is king right now. Did, did y'all hear that? Jesus Christ is king right now. Okay? Thank you. I, I knew I could get one out of Brother Sam. Um, listen, he's not waiting to be the king. He's not trying to be the king. He's not hoping that someday he'll be the king. He doesn't need anyone's approval to be the king. When you're the king, you're the king. Jesus Christ is not just the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the son of man appointed by the ancient of days as ruler of this eternal kingdom that is ever growing, ever expanding. When we we think about the competition supposed competition between the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of Christ. We need look no farther than Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm. And I want you to, I know our Bible study is over, but 
Bear with me. Go to Psalm 2. I want you to read this. And, and when you go home today, I want you to read it again. And then when you get up tomorrow morning, I want you to read it again. I want you to start thinking about the implications of Psalm 2 on what we're talking about today, this kingdom of Christ our King. Psalm 2 reads, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Get this, he who sits in heaven, that's the ancient of days, to bring it back to our text today, he who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's, a, that's like a sermon series right there in, the, in that one phrase, and we don't have time for it today. But this idea of the son being begotten of the father and the authority that comes with that. Verse 8, this is instruction to that one who is begotten, to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does it mean to go with the gospel of the kingdom? It means to convey to the world around us the truth of Psalm 2. We are to cry out to lost and wicked people to stop raging against their king. Because Jesus does not need approval to be their king. He simply is. We're not trying to convince people to let Jesus be king. He's the king. And they will either submit to him now or they will submit to him in eternal damnation. Consider the repercussions of this as we look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. We're all familiar with this. Uh, most of us begin the Great Commission in verse 19 where it says, Go therefore and make disciples. I want to back it up one verse. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. We read, And Jesus came and said to him, to, uh, excuse me, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's zero in on, on the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth. Okay, He could have said all authority, but he said all authority, and then he explained what all meant in this situation, because all doesn't always mean all. Okay, If, if, if we were to say West Monroe High School won the state championship, all of West Monroe went down for the game. Well, we, we know that, that no, they, they didn't every single human being go down. So all doesn't mean all necessarily in that sense, right? But in this sense, it's clarified for us. All authority in heaven and on earth. So the authority that's not on earth, that's in heaven, and the authority that is on earth belongs to who? Belongs to Jesus. Belongs to the Son of Man because it was granted to him by the Ancient of Days. Okay, now verse 19, his commission to us says, go therefore. In other words, on the basis of what I just told you, that I am in possession of all authority, I am commanding you to go and make disciples. 
Notice, this does not mean let's set up some churches and get some people to come make decisions for Christ and sign cards. Okay? That's not what's in view here. What's in view in this verse is discipling the nations. That's the command that has been given to the apostles and by extension to us. We are to go and disciple the nations. That means we are to Christianize the nations. And if we look at history, everywhere the gospel has gone forth, it has produced a radically changed society. This is not to say that the goal necessarily of the gospel is simply cultural reformation. Of course not. But that is a byproduct of hearts that are changed by the message of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you this week when you're standing at the back fence talking to your neighbor, that is an opportunity for you to go with the gospel of the kingdom, to advance the kingdom of God with the gospel of Christ. When you're at the baseball park um, with other parents and you have opportunities to interact with them, that is your chance to expand the kingdom of God, little by little, bit by bit, as we have been commanded to do, to be part of this stone. When we're in Christ, remember Christ is the stone cut with no human hands, when we're in Christ, we are participating in that expanding stone into a mountain that fills the earth. We are part of this building project. We are part of this kingdom advance. I've got a bunch of other stuff to talk about here, and I'm not going to have time for it. I'm not going to submit you to all this today. But let me, just, let me just close with this. I know that a lot of us are thinking to ourselves, okay, I hear all of this, sounds good, it's exciting, but have you read the newspaper lately? And the answer to that is no. I don't read the newspaper anymore. Um, I don't find it particularly helpful. Um, yes, I know things are, are rough. I know things are, for our country, we're in a time of really dissent in terms of morality and our, our commitment to Christ as a culture. But I just believe these promises. And if, if by chance, uh, the, the United States of America takes a deep dive and, and becomes not a Christian nation anymore, if that's the case... We can look to other places in the world and see that the kingdom of God is expanding at rates that are mind-boggling. When the gospel first began, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there were 11 apostles and maybe a handful of other followers around surrounding them, okay? But primarily, we're talking about 11 guys because Judas turned out to be a fraud, okay? Today, one-third of the 8 billion people on this planet claim the, the title Christian. Okay, now certainly that, that includes a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of apostate groups. Uh, we, we would consider uh, Roman Catholicism an apostate group. Um, but there are undoubtedly those who are saved despite the teachings of that apostate church. Um, this would also include phony baloney Christians in our country. We've got a lot of people that claim to be Christian that are anything but Okay, But this number, this one-third number, also includes people who claim the name of Christ in countries where it can cost them their life. The gospel is growing in China. I don't have any way to verify this other than to believe what the missionaries tell us, but the gospel in South America, Protestantism, people are leaving Roman Catholicism in South America today at a greater rate than they came out of Catholicism in the Reformation in Europe. There's a lot of reason for us to look around and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, this country is going down the wrong road. We just, we, we just balked on an opportunity to offer equal protection to unborn children in this state. We passed on it. And, and, and that was headed up by largely um, groups that are supposed to be right to life. Okay, that's a shameful thing. That's a terrible thing. 
Uh, we, we have, we're governed by two political parties, one of which has, has never seen an act of immorality that they didn't want to write into their platform. And the other party is a group that is so cowardly they can't stand up to the wickedness of, of the opposite party. Okay, yeah, we're, we look around and, and things are rough. Things are bad, obviously. But look, as bad as things might be, Jesus is that much better. His kingdom will uh, succeed. We're told in Scripture. The question is, do we believe it or do we not? And my challenge to you today as a church, believe the promises of God's word. When it tells us that this little stone that crumbled the statue, the four kingdoms represented in Daniel 2, when we're told that that very stone is growing into a mountain that's going to take over the whole world, that's going to dominate the whole world, let's stop questioning that. Let's believe it, and let's go live our lives as though we believe it. Go with the gospel. Train up your children. Catechize your kids. um, Teach them uh, a Christian worldview. Proclaim to your neighbor and your families the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ has come and died and rose again for the salvation of all who would believe. And let's leave the growth of the kingdom to the one who actually grows the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this has been a, a time in your word this morning that is, to me, very exciting. Uh, we, we are grateful, Lord. I am grateful, and I praise you for the great truths of Daniel 7. I praise you, God, that your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who came as a stone cut by no human hands to topple and crush and dismantle wicked earthly kingdoms, God, I praise you that he has done and is doing just that. Father, I praise you, Lord, that your kingdom will continue to grow. Lord, we we glorify you in the growth that we've seen in your kingdom. We pray and repent of our wickedness and our sin as we depart from the truths of Scripture as a culture and as a society. But, Lord, we also pray and ask you to bring us back to you. We ask you to revive us, to renew our minds, to renew our strength as we commit ourselves to live lives in obedience to you, in honor of you and of your law, God, and in praise uh, to the glorious grace of your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.